Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to the Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast, brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. I'm Karen Sketsina, the Infant Medical Director of TIPQC. Today's discussion will feature Dr. Katherine Knapp and Dr. John Purvis discussing the care of an infant with an HIV-positive mother. Dr. Purvis is Director of Pediatrics at Regional One Health and cares for infants immediately following delivery. He is an Associate Professor at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center in Memphis an assistant director of the pediatric residency program there, and directs the level one nursery at Regional One Health. Dr. Knapp is a pediatric infectious disease specialist. She is the medical director of the perinatal HIV program at St. Jude in Memphis. She is also an associate member of St. Jude in Memphis. She cares for infants as well as HIV-positive children and adolescents. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for having us today. Thank you. We're glad to be here. We are so glad you're here today. And to get us started, I wondered if you could both share a little bit more about your careers and what sparked your interest in pediatrics. Dr. Purvis, we can start with you. You are not only a pediatrician, but have a particular focus on caring for newborns. Can you also share what prompted that interest? Yeah, and I don't know that I've ever talked about this like in an open session like this before, but uh, when I was doing my pediatric residency at the University of Florida affiliate site in Pensacola, Florida, I was doing my well baby rotation in September of 2001. And uh, we all know what happened on September 11th. And that day was very hard for everyone, but especially for moms giving birth that day. They, I had to console so many crying moms that day because they, this was supposed to be a happy occasion for them. It was supposed to be a wonderful occasion for them. And their children were coming into the world on a day of so much tragedy and misery. And I kind of made a promise to myself and to all those children that were born that day that I was going to go out into this world and make the world a better place for those children every day and every child born every day thereafter. And uh, my mentor, who was my attending that day, Dr. Bob Wilson, And I just sort of uh, had a real special moment that day in the nursery. And it's just sort of stuck with me. I did 12 years of clinical practice uh, working in rural areas of Tennessee and Arkansas. And a lot of my practice was uh, obviously caring for well babies in the nursery. And when I made the decision to 
change careers and get into an academic setting, I was very fortunate to be able to find this position. And, and a newborn hospitalist position is not something you can find at every academic medical center. And, uh, and I was just pleased as anything that they invited me to, to come aboard. I've been here for nine years, starting tomorrow, actually, nine years tomorrow. And uh, I've enjoyed every minute of it. Every minute of it. It's been great. Well, happy nine-year anniversary to you tomorrow, and we are certainly fortunate to have you here in Tennessee. Dr. Knapp, you are not only a pediatrician, but you also specialize in infectious disease, in particular caring for infants, children, and adolescents with HIV. Could you tell us more about what prompted that interest? Sure. Well, I've always wanted to be a pediatrician, honestly, for as long as I can remember. And then during my pediatrics residency, I was found myself most interested in the infectious disease cases, which infectious diseases are a big part of general pediatrics. But I just found that very interesting and it was solving puzzles. I like puzzles. And I realized that's kind of where I wanted to go instead of general practice, which is what I'd always assumed I'd wind up doing. So then I came to Memphis to do my fellowship, and it's a combined program at Le Bonheur and St. Jude as part of the UT residency fellowship programs. And when I was, I did basic science research, which I'd never done. I'm glad I did it, but I, it was obvious that was not for me. So in my third year fellowship, I started working with the HIV clinical service at St. Jude. So in Memphis, all of the HIV-infected youth and adolescents are followed at St. Jude. I knew that they were expanding the clinical infectious disease program at St. Jude, and there were um, job opportunities. So I looked into having that position, and I really enjoyed it because um, one of my hats is being a consultant for the infectious disease general consult service. But then in the within the HIV arena, I get I do get some continuity of care that you don't normally get in infectious diseases. So I've been here 23 years. So I, we've had our patients have babies, and then I get to see the babies and watch them grow up. So I very much enjoy what what I get to do and see the babies. Well, and it's really nice to have that continuity of care with patients. Let's talk first about data. What's the current prevalence and incidence of HIV among pregnant women and among newborns? And how have these rates or other statistics changed recently? So we don't have great data on how many pregnant women living with HIV there are every year. It's estimated there are about 5,000 deliveries a year in the U.S. to women living with HIV. In Memphis, we have somewhere between 45 and 55 deliveries a year. They seem to all happen in the same week, right, John? <laughs> so seems like it should be more than 50. Yeah, they, they do tend to cluster together, it seems. And the prevalence rate of HIV amongst infants born to mothers is less than 1%. And that's been stable for, for several years now. Although if you look at the CDC numbers on number of infected infants, it does seem that there has been a decrease and they report a 40% decrease over the past five years in um, number of cases in newborns, but still less than 1% overall. 
So that's good news if the number of cases in newborns is decreasing. I wondered if you could share what some of the key points of current HIV screening guidelines in pregnant women are. So all women are who are pregnant are supposed to be screened for HIV. Ideally, they are screened at their first visit when they come in for their first new OB visit when they first become pregnant because early identification of HIV is so important because if you can get mom into treatment early and get her HIV under control, that's where we have these better outcomes for our babies. And then we also recommend screening every woman at uh, about 36 weeks, so towards the end of their third trimester, even if they were screened negative initially, because we know that you can acquire HIV in pregnancy, and we need to know if mother's conditions have changed during that time. So recommendations for screening at the first prenatal visit, and then again at 36 weeks of pregnancy. What resources are available to direct care of HIV-positive pregnant women? And what suggestions do you have for providers caring for HIV-positive moms? So, I mean, here in Memphis, we have excellent resources. We have great providers here at Regional One in conjunction with what we call our adult special care clinic that takes care of a lot of our adult patients in Memphis and the surrounding area that do have HIV. And so if one of our female patients in adult special care is found to be pregnant, they will refer them into our OB clinic. And uh, one of our colleagues, Nina Sublet, is someone who sees those moms regularly. And so, and then of course we take referrals from not just in Shelby County, but from around our region into our clinic at Regional One. And we wanna make sure that those moms are in care, they get seen more frequently, they get tested, more frequently because we want to make sure we're measuring their viral load because that's how we monitor control. We measure their CD4 counts, also helps sort of monitor the progression of their disease. And we want to make sure that they're on the right combination of antiretroviral therapy to treat their HIV. So as far as resources for care, um, the Department of Health and Human Services publishes guidelines and they're available on the internet. These are updated periodically, so they're living documents that are there. And every time they have an update, they will post it and people can go and sign up to get email alerts to be notified when there are updates to the guidelines. So those they, they have also guidelines for care of children, adolescents, and adults with HIV and prevention and treatment of opportunistic infections and in all these populations. And these are the guidelines that we use to direct care for anyone living with HIV. And for suggestions for OBs, so John talked about how things work at Regional One, which is where most of the women living with HIV in our area receive care and deliver. But I would say, I know we are in Memphis seeing more and more patients who stay with their primary OBGYN provider. But I would say it's very important to at least have a consultation with someone who is a specialist in maternal fetal medicine, whether they have specific training in infectious diseases or not, because it's so important to coordinate the care for the outcomes for the baby. So what we do here, John and I and Dr. Sublet, he talked about at Regional One, 
we meet, we have a care conference where we review the pregnant women so that we know we know which infants are going to be at higher risk of acquiring infection. And so we, we know how best to take care of the infants before they're born so that we can alert everyone in the hospital. I think it's also a good opportunity for OB providers to talk to the specialist because there also are research opportunities that the women may be eligible for. There may be things they would have access to they wouldn't otherwise. And we are still learning a lot about outcomes in infants born to moms exposed, infants exposed to the virus and to the medicines the mom took to help prevent transmission to the baby. So I think it's, it's another very important thing is to let these women have opportunities for research or other, other assistance that they can receive. Sounds great. So really important for moms to get connected to infectious disease consultation because we want to make sure that their care is coordinated, that they are on the right treatment. Like you mentioned, there may be research opportunities and we can make sure that that DHHS guideline document you referenced as a living document is available in the show notes because you always want to access the the current guidelines and and the science and the guidelines are are evolving. So perfect. So let's let's change gears and talk about the newborn. Could you discuss the approach to testing and managing newborns born to moms who are HIV positive and similarly share any suggestions you have for pediatric health providers caring for this patient population? So the approach really depends on how well mom's HIV was controlled during pregnancy. And that's like Dr. Knapp mentioned, that's one of the reasons why we have these care conferences is so we kind of know in advance what our plan is going to be. A mom who has been living with HIV and has been taking her medications appropriately and has well-controlled disease, can come in and have a regular vaginal delivery. And initial testing for the baby is going to be relatively minimal. We get a just a complete blood count just to look at the baby's white blood cells and red blood cells when they're born. And then we start the baby on antiretroviral therapy, the oldest antiretroviral therapy we have, which is called Zidavidine. And some people may know it as ACT. That's the, the colloquial term for it. And then we are in touch here at our hospital with our colleagues at St. Jude, and we get those infants arranged for follow-up to be seen in a week, in two weeks, to have additional testing done for HIV. At that time, they would get an HIV viral load to see if they have any presence of virus in their bloodstream and some additional testing. If mom is not well-controlled for whatever reason, then she's going to have some pretreatment prior to delivery. She is going to likely have a C-section. And then we will do additional testing on the baby when they are born. In addition to checking their blood count, we'll go ahead and get a viral load on the baby when they are first born. And then we start them on what we call triple antiretroviral therapy, which is kind of like a post-exposure prophylaxis regimen. So because we know that the baby may be exposed if mom's virus is not well controlled. And then they're going to have closer and more frequent follow-up at St. Jude. Now, that's what we do here at Regional One. Having been a rural provider, 
I know that any mom can come into your OB emergency room at any time. And then finding out that somebody has HIV can elicit a little bit of a panic in a hospital that does not routinely deal with HIV positive patients. So my advice, which I, I definitely did, is have your local pediatric infectious disease doctor on speed dial. There are infectious disease docs in all regions of our state, West, Middle, and East Tennessee. And knowing who your contact person is in your particular region that specializes in HIV is who you want to talk to. And you want to get mom's history. You want to have her labs, her most recent labs, what medication she's on. And then you want to come up with the best treatment plan for that baby. And then again, the most important thing is making sure that you establish follow-up for that baby with an infectious disease clinic, because you don't want to drop the ball. You don't want these babies to be lost to follow-up because good follow-up care is key to helping prevent HIV in these kids. So I can pick up from what happens after the newborn time period. So as John said, we get the referrals from Regional One and from the other hospitals. And the recommendation is to do initial testing for those who are not at high risk at 14 to 21 days of age. So that's typically when we bring them in. Sometimes we do bring them a little earlier because we have some research protocols that have visits within the first week of life. But that is typically when we see most of them for the first time. And we get, as he said, a test looking for the virus. And then after that, we bring them back at one to two months of age. And also we want that to be a couple of weeks after they've stopped any medicine they have been taking for, to prevent transmission. And after that, we bring them back when they are four to six months of age. So it's two or three tests usually that we do in the first six months of life here at St. Jude. The medicine they're on, at a minimum, they will take the Zydobudine for two weeks. So for babies who are at the lowest risk born at term to moms who have controlled viral loads, they only need two weeks of the medicine. Other infants will need the Zydobudine for four to six weeks. And then the highest risk infants would get the presumptive treatment with three drugs. And what I do then is plan for them to have a six-week course of that. And if their testing at one month of age is negative, we plan to stop that medicine at six weeks of age. So once again, really important to have that infectious disease consultation and close follow-up. Could you talk about breastfeeding recommendations in this situation and any other important patient education that the pediatric health providers should share with, with families in this situation? So obviously, as pediatricians, we very strongly encourage breastfeeding in our patient population. Breastfeeding in HIV, however, has been kind of the exception to that rule for decades because we know that HIV is found in breast milk of women who have HIV. And so in developed countries with adequate clean water and ready available access to formula, we have been avoiding recommending breastfeeding for most of the last three decades to moms who are, who are HIV positive. However, with good control good testing, and good antiretroviral therapy. We have a lot of women in this country who have HIV, who are of a reproductive age, 
who have undetectable viral loads. And undetectable, per the CDC, is untransmissible. And so then that begs the question, can they breastfeed? And so that guidance has changed recently. I don't want to say that we as pediatricians are going to recommend that moms who are HIV positive breastfeed because we still have ready access to formula available in this country and no risk is better than minimal risk. But if a mom wants to breastfeed, we're not going to actively discourage her at this point. She needs to know that she's going to need to exclusively breastfeed for six months, which means not adding formula, not doing complementary foods. She's going to need to do very good breast hygiene because she needs to make sure she does not have any cracks or sores on her nipples where there may be some bleeding. You don't want blood introduced into the breast milk. You want to make sure that the baby also has good oral health. So if the baby had thrush, maybe has some mucous membrane breakdown, other oral lesions, breastfeeding would not be recommended at that point also. And then finally, the mom is going to have more frequent testing during that period of time while she is breastfeeding. So she needs to make sure that she's continuing to take her medications. She needs to make sure that she's going to regular doctor visits, getting her viral load checked, and making sure that her viral load remains undetectable for the duration of that time. And then at the point where she opts that she wants to stop breastfeeding or introduce complementary foods, or she wants to change the formula, it is strongly recommended before she does that, that she consults her general pediatrician and that they talk with a pediatric infectious disease provider and also mom's infectious disease provider to determine the best route to do that. Because we know when moms are weaning themselves from breastfeeding, especially suddenly, that can cause their viral loads to go up and that can increase risk both to mom and baby. Yes. So as Dr. Purvis said, breastfeeding used to be just not recommended. It was just don't do it. That's really all they talked about in the guidelines. And as we know, there may be virus detectable in the breast milk, even if it's not detectable in the blood. And obviously we don't have easy ways um, outside of the research setting to test breast milk for viral load. And again, normally we have ready availability of formula in this country and clean water supplies. And we also don't know a lot about the safety of the drugs being transmitted via breast milk to the infant. Are there any extra risks to the infant that way? It wasn't until March of 2018 that the guidelines even addressed talking about <laughs> breastfeeding. It was asking, what, what, are, what are they planning to do? Because we would find out, we'd say, don't do it. And then they would do it anyway. And we'd much rather know they were doing that. And they also talked about there's a lot of societal pressures in some populations, particularly in some immigrant populations, if they are not breastfeeding, everyone is going to know, want to know why they are not breastfeeding. So they finally addressed discussing it with families. And then in 2022, they discussed having a risk reduction management model for the providers to discuss with the moms. And in um, January of this year, they essentially rewrote the guidelines. So now it's still not recommended, but they say that breastfeeding can be an option for some women. So as Dr. Purvis said, women who are virologically suppressed and who remain on their antiretroviral treatment. And as we, as we learn more, 
it seems that the risk to the infant is not any greater than it, than it is already if the mom stays on medicines and stays undetectable. In those cases, we don't have to have the baby on medicine for longer periods of time or more medicine, but we do have to have more follow-up. So that is a sticking point that may, may be of concern to the families because the babies will have to get, get stuck a lot more often. Every three months while the mom is breastfed, they have to have labs drawn. So that's definitely something to consider. But we have successfully had somewhere between 10 and 15 moms, I need to, I need to go look at our data, who have chosen to breastfeed and those infants have, have been negative. Wonderful. Well, thank you for that discussion of the evolving guidelines. That's really helpful. What can you tell us about effects and outcomes with HIV infection in pregnant women and their infants? So as far as the effects on the infants, that is something that is being studied. I am actually the site principal investigator for FACS, which is the PHACS, which is Pediatric HIV AIDS Cohort Study. And this has been a study that's been funded since 2005, and we were one of the initial sites to participate with the protocols that opened in 2007. And there are two main protocols that look at long-term outcomes in infants who were exposed at birth but not infected. And also another protocol looks at infants who were perinatally infected as they grow up through childhood, adolescence, and young adulthood. In the past, before we had really good drugs to treat the moms, when babies got infected, sorry, when we didn't have good drugs to treat the babies either, we weren't having, the the babies tended to die at a young age. And we have now have children who were infected perinatally who are in their 40s and doing well. So we don't have a lot of long-term data on the effect of being being infected at birth. We do know from the studies that there are some concerns, for example, through the FACT study, we have shown that being exposed to the virus at birth, they have some higher levels of cardiac biomarkers that could that are evidence of inflammation, possible damage to the heart. So that's something we're going to continue to look at in the study to see, is it because just being exposed to the virus or is it just certain medicines that the mom or baby took that, that puts them at that increased risk? So we don't have a lot of long-term data right now, but it's something that we definitely need to be following up. And there have been over 5,000 enrollments in this study that I was talking about through FACTS. So, so we are collecting a lot of data that will help us know how best to take care of the moms and babies, both to prevent infection and to keep them healthy. That's wonderful. Well, we will look forward to learning more from your research. Anything else you wanted to add? regarding effects and outcomes, Dr. Purvis? I think it's important that these infants, whether they are just exposed uh, to HIV and the medications used to treat HIV, or if they are perinatally infected, that they're getting close developmental follow-up as well. You want to make sure that their pediatricians are doing regular developmental checks, make sure these children are meeting their developmental milestones. And any child who seems to be falling behind their peers should be referred into early intervention services and receiving appropriate therapy. Great advice. Is there anything else that you feel is needed to improve care of pregnant women with HIV and their newborns? Or 
any improvement projects that you've been involved in that you'd like to share examples from? As we've said earlier, the most important thing is to get the women identified as having infections. So it's important that people get into prenatal care when they're pregnant, that they do get that early testing if they're not already known to be positive. That's the most important thing. We still, as we all know, have there are still way too many women in this country who don't have prenatal care or who have inadequate prenatal care. So that is definitely the, the first step that where there's room for improvement across the board that would definitely help us um, decrease the risk to these infants. Yeah, I, I would second that. Having access to care is the most important thing. And your key to having access to care is having access to affordable health insurance in order to be able to receive that care because that's how the healthcare system in this country works. And so all pregnant women need to have health insurance so that they can get prenatal care, so that they can get prenatal testing. And all children need to have health insurance so that they can have adequate pediatric care, whether they are exposed to HIV perinatally, they are perinatally infected, or none of the above, because all children need access to care. And the only way they get access to care is through adequate health insurance coverage. So that's, that's, I think, the bottom line right there. One thing we've done, it wasn't exactly a quality improvement project, but we were able to get funding for a perinatal social worker. So we have a social worker who works both with the mothers while they're pregnant And then she works with them after they've delivered. So she sees them with their babies when they come to St. Jude. And I think this has been very helpful in keeping these women engaged in care, particularly for the women who were diagnosed during pregnancy and don't come from having an HIV care provider outside of pregnancy. And we were seeing a lot of women would would get prenatal care. They would do everything they needed to take care of the baby, but they would kind of drop out of care themselves. They would never re-engage or engage for the first time with an HIV care provider. And this was leading to short interval pregnancies with women having back-to-back pregnancies, which is something we you know, would hope to avoid and have more planning involved. So that has been very beneficial for us to have the social worker who already knows the moms, is following them, and helps them make that appointment with the HIV care provider so that she can get engaged in care. Great, great points and example. What else should we be doing to prevent HIV infection and in particular primary prevention? Oh my goodness. The one thing, HIV is a completely preventable illness. It is a completely preventable illness. As somebody who grew up during the beginning of the HIV epidemic and was in medical school as things were changing, as antiretrovirals were being introduced, it hurts me to my soul every time I find out there is a new HIV diagnosis because it is a completely preventable illness and we are failing our population if we are not educating them in how to adequately prevent HIV. I think the way to do that is through appropriate sex education in the school system, through ready access to reproductive health care services, 
I know there are a variety of places in West and Middle Tennessee, I don't know about East Tennessee, where you can go and get prep for free. And so these, these resources are out there and it's just making sure we need to do a better job educating our vulnerable population that these resources are out there. We need to make sure that they have access to these resources and we need to make sure that they're availing themselves of these resources because that's how we put it into the HIV epidemic is through prevention. I want to echo what Dr. Purvis said about PrEP, PrEPers or pre-exposure prophylaxis. Not a lot of people know about HIV PrEP. And I think we're, we're starting to see commercials about it. I think we're getting better about getting the message out to gay men and men who have sex with men. But as far as women, it's not something you, you really hear about. And I think that a lot of the women do not perceive themselves to be at high risk. Nobody's really talking about PrEP in women. So that is definitely something that should be addressed. I recently had a mom who was diagnosed late in her third trimester. She had a partner known to be positive. And as they told me, they asked her provider about PrEP and were told that it was not safe for her. And, and she wound up getting infected. And the, and the drugs we use for PrEP are the same drugs that we use for treatment of HIV. So they are drugs that are used in pregnant women. So that's a, a big <laughs> misconception there. Yes, women, even women who are planning to become pregnant, we've had women that have been followed during pregnancy on PrEP to make sure that they um, did not become infected and did not have any toxic effects from the medicines. So there's still a lot of education that can be done about what ways to prevent HIV. Dr. Purvis, Dr. Knapp, thank you so much for talking with me. You have shared so much important information. Any final closing thoughts? Thank you so much for having us on today because anytime we can spread the word that uh, treatment for pregnant moms and infants born to women with HIV is, is out there and it's readily available. And the amazing thing that's happened in the last 30 years is, is we've taken this natural transmission rate of HIV in pregnancy and we've knocked it down to less than 1%, like Dr. Knapp said at the beginning of the program. That's in a generation. And that is amazing progress to me. So to me, that's the take-home message is, is we've made great strides and we just need to continue making those strides. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee presented by TipQC. TipQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.